Welcome to The Paleo View. I'm bestselling author and co-creator of realeverything.com, Stacey Toth. I focus on being healthy inside and out through real life, food, and talk. I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne, New York Times bestselling author and creator of thepaleomom.com. I'm passionate about improving scientific literacy around public health topics. I like hashtags and bone broth. And I'm just a super nerd. Hey, listeners, welcome back to The Paleo View. We have a special show number today, 369. (laughs) Sarah, the math works on that in so many ways. No, I just, I love numbers where they relate to each other, like as if I was counting by threes, but it's all in one digit and you are the same. And you can add three plus six equals nine mm-hmm. to everybody who is not a math dork right now. They're face palming, but that's okay. Yeah, they're like, they're, they really don't get it. But <laughs> we love we love numbers. We love palindromes. It's like anything that relates to pi in any way. Pi, not pie. I mean, anything that relates to either kind of pie. I think I was going to say I'm not going to I'm not going to poo poo on the you know kind you eat either. So, um, let me tell you about. My number, what happened this week? Happy birthday! Thank you. Um, I actually do not have a problem with getting older. This is something that's been kind of odd for me. My entire life, people have always thought I was older than I am. I've always had friends who are older, and like, I'm just cool with that. And um, I know that not everybody is, but the thing that happens when you get older. Is the change of life. (laughs) And, you know, I've been talking about this a little bit on social media because I've noticed definitely, especially the last year, um, my wrinkles are getting more pronounced. I have my wrinkles deepen instead of getting more fine lines and wrinkles. I think it just depends on your genetics and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I've noticed what I, I call those wisdom lines, by the way. That's my oh, special oh, word. I like it. I like it. And I've noticed a few gray hairs. Well, I've gotten like sporadic gray hairs, maybe like once every year I'll find one. But in the past year, I've noticed several in the same spot. Like clearly I have a patch on my head where gray hairs are coming from. And I call those, what did I call them? Sparkle, tinsel, whatever you want to call them in your hair. And um, I think it's it's in the way you approach it. It's in the way that you feel. Just like we say, um, metric of health. I think it's the same exact implication for age, right? You you're trying to live a healthy lifestyle to then enable you to feel your best as it applies to the aging process, as well as everything else we talk about. So um, today on the show, I having been inspired by my own aging journey, we're going to talk about aging as a woman. So specifically perimenopause and menopause, as we get older, what happens from a physical perspective and what can we do about it from a lifestyle perspective. But before we jump into that, I do just want to remind people that the great thing about heading into perimenopause and menopause and aging is that you're still alive. And I think this is 
I, I mean, I'm serious. I think this is lost on a lot of people. My grandfather used to say when it was his birthday, he would say, well, it's better than the alternative. And I think that when we approach things from life, from the perspective of how grateful I am to be alive, how lucky I am to be healthy and um, to to feel good and to focus on finding my best health, um, it makes some of the other stuff really not that important. So that's why we're going to sh- focus on the health piece and feeling your best <laughs> because that really is what's important. Um, and I want to make sure that we give a shout out to this week's episode sponsor, Everlywell. Uh, we're going to talk about them more later in the episode as we talk about important testing when we're hitting perimenopause and menopause. But before I get there, I want to remind our listeners that we love Everly Well. They're an at-home lab testing company that um, we've talked about before in terms of vitamin D testing. We talked about it in our men's health show. Um, But our listeners can go to everlywell.com forward slash the paleo view and get 15% off any kit with the order code the paleo view coupon code not order code. That's silly. Thank you for reminding our listeners about the at-home tests they can take themselves to look into some of the things that we'll talk about. And like you said, we'll get, we'll get into that later in the show. So I'm assuming you have some science. I know I, I brought all of my soapbox and emotions. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you're going to bring the facts. <laughs> yeah. I, so this, this was an interesting one for me to research, uh, in part like you, Stacey, where I have noticed some subtle ch- and some less subtle changes over the last, um, for me, even few months. And I've been starting to wonder if I'm entering perimenopause. And so as I was researching this, um, I went back and forth between going, oh, it's stress. Oh, no, it's menopause. Oh, no, it's stress. Oh, no, it's menopause. And as we sort of get into a lot of the symptoms and even a lot of the diet and lifestyle stuff that we can do to mitigate those symptoms, um, I think our listeners will really understand why it can be really challenging to to identify a uh, hormone imbalance, which the most common driver of hormone imbalances in women beyond uh, like hormonal contraceptive use or, or something like that would be chronic stress and actual, you know, biological changes, you know, uh, that are, will result in menopause. So I think it helps to sort of start with like, what is the definition of menopause versus mer- perimenopause? Because uh, often m- the term menopause is used as this catch-all, um, but actually menopause actually m- means the end of the change of life, as you said, Stacey, the end of the transition. So menopause refers to the time in a woman's life where she is can no longer reproduce. So the those ovaries are not pumping out any more eggs. Um, and it is marked by at least a year without menses, right? At least a year without a period. Perimenopause refers to that period of time that is the transition between premenopausal, so reproductive years, and menopause, which is sometimes referred to as postmenopausal, but it really just like that menopause should cover that, right? Menopause is uh, no longer uh, able to reproduce premenopause before that, able to reproduce perimenopause, which means like around 
menopause is the transition. And that transition for most women will start sometime in their 40s, usually late 40s. Um, but some women will start to notice change as early as their mid-30s. It can last, it can actually be almost instant. So you pretty much, you're fine, you're fine, you're fine, you're fine. And then you don't have a period again. And it's that, then you're menopausal. So it can literally be from, that would be, it would still be called a year because they wouldn't define it as menopause until you hadn't had a period for a year. Um, but it can be basically anywhere from that fast to more than a decade. Um, somewhere around four to 10 years of perimenopause is actually the the most common. So that's that's considered perfectly normal. And what's happening in that period of time is uh, estrogen levels are are starting to drop. And what can drive a lot of the symptoms, part of it is um, as estrogen drops can drop quite rapidly, just that hormone shift can cause a lot of the symptoms, but also throughout perimenopause, estrogen can kind of cycle in a weird way. Um, it stops being the regular cycle that we have through our menstruation cycles. It starts being more unpredictable. It can rise and fall. And so it's that change generally in estrogen that is driving all of the perimenopause symptoms. So there's like the classic symptoms, like hot flashes, like sleep problems, like vaginal dryness, that um, are the ones that uh, have sort of reached like almost like a like a stereotype about menopause. Those are all driven by by this sort of fairly fairly large drop in in estrogen. But there's actually a lot of other symptoms that can indicate perimenopause and and through late perimenopause and into menopause. So um, the, the symptoms will tend to progress throughout that four to 10 year period of perimenopause. So uh, early on, the symptoms are things like irregular periods. So that can be anything from them speeding up in frequency, uh, being unusually heavy, being unusually light, um, being unusually far apart. Like it, it's basically <laughs> unpredictability is basically the, the symptom. Um, so they can be anywhere on that they're just not normal they're wonky uh worse pms um or pms lasting longer before periods breast tenderness weight gain that doesn't you know scale with diet and lifestyle changes in hair including hair becoming dry or hair loss um more rapid heart heartbeat um and including actually a, a lot of women will have cardiovascular disease risk factors start to to rise with perimenopause and menopause. So you might get regular heartbeat. You might also get high blood pressure. You might also get uh, hypercholesteremia, hyperlipidemia, so high cholesterol, high blood lipids, uh, high triglycerol. So that's that's something that can actually, it's sort of stereotypically thought as part of menopause, but it can actually start with perimenopause. Uh, headaches. Um, loss of sex drive, loss of libido, um, some cognitive uh, challenges, mostly like trouble concentrating or forgetfulness. Um, uh, you know, women will have, um, if they're trying to conceive, will have fertility problems. And that's because throughout perimenopause, women will sometimes skip ovulating. So they won't ovulate, but they'll still end up having a period. And so there's no egg to, to fertilize. 
Um, muscle aches can be a symptom of perimenopause um, and urinary tract infections. And then as women go through, right, so they get, they're going through this, this period of time in between premenopause and menopause, as they get closer to menopause and estrogen levels continue to drop, um, some of these symptoms can, can basically like increase to a more severe form. So for example, with the cognitive, uh, you know, neurological things that are happening with that drop in estrogen, you can start to get, um, much more severe symptoms like depression, like anxiety, irritability, mood swings. Um, you can start to get um, from sort of sleep disturbances all the way to insomnia. Um, dry skin um, will often become a, a much more um, noticeable symptom through like later perimenopause. This is where the hot flashes will typically kick in, night sweats, which are basically the nighttime version of a hot flash, um, fatigue, which is uh, both related to metabolism and related to sleep problems. This is where um, uh, the uh, sort of sexual dysfunction problems can increase. So um, it's not just loss of libido, but now it can be vaginal dryness. It can be uh, vulvular atrophy. Um, and this is where also instead of just frequent UTIs, you can have um, overactive bladder or um, uh, uh, urinary incontinence. So this this would be the phase where women would complain about um, urinating a little bit when they cough or sneeze. And so that's that's also a sort of a more typical thing that would happen through late perimenopause and that shift into menopause. And then there's some. Um, because there's this crosstalk between the stress axis, the um, sex hormone axis, and the thyroid axis, there's also a lot of, that's why you sort of see symptoms that relate to um, stress. So, so also in the psychological effects of menopause, there's a lot of, um, you know, just feeling, feeling stress more. Um, that's where the depression, anxiety, irritability can, can come in as well. Um, but there's also hypothyroidism that, can be triggered by menopause, including like Hashimoto's thyroiditis, but also subclinical hypothyroidism that doesn't seem to relate to thyroid antibodies. And so there's also some other like health implications that comes with menopause. This is where, uh, because estrogen regulates uh, bone mineralization, this is where uh, osteoporosis risk increases. We already talked about cardiovascular disease risk factors increasing. So there are also some uh, chronic disease risk implications of menopause because of where estrogen signals other hormones and signals into the immune system. So as that estrogen drops, uh, it can it can also right it can cause a bunch of unpleasant symptoms. Not always. Not all women will have all of these. They can be really minor. They can be non-existent. And for some women, it can be, a, you know, really impactful. Um, but it's also this other side of it of, of increasing disease risk. I'm glad that you stopped to take a breath because I'm a little bit uh, like anxiety over all the things that you just talked about. I think for me... Um, I'm really lucky that my mom has not gone through the change yet. And so um, I'm wondering if genetically, and I, I've always been kind of curious about this, if it had to do with um, 
how many children you have and that pushing it back, right? Because you're dropping less eggs through the period of time, um, that you are pregnant. Um, but I wondered like, Oh, my, I can't believe my mom's not even in perimenopause yet. Like she's had hormone tests done and she's not. And so, um, it's interesting that you mentioned it can happen over a long period of time or for some people it can just happen. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, Oh, on, you know, the good side, that means probably is what's going to happen to me. But then on the bad side, my understanding and correct me if I'm wrong is a lot of the side effects that you're talking about kind of all hit you at once then because your hormone changes so rapidly rather than over time. Is that, am I assuming that correctly? Do you think? Um, so there are definitely risk factors that have been identified that can cause menopause to come early. I'm not sure that I've seen, uh, so I've seen some interesting uh, studies that look at, uh, I think it's called ovulatory reserve. So it's basically like how many still good eggs you have in your ovaries um, and looking at effects on that. And there's definitely with both sides of it, there's definitely a familial, uh, probably genetically inherited aspect. So if you have family members who went through menopause early, you're more likely to go through menopause early. And if your family member, like immediate family members went through menopause later, you're more likely to go through it later. So that's, there's definitely a genetic aspect. I'm not sure, I didn't encounter anything, so I don't know specifically about the um, pregnancy prolonging uh, reproductive years. I don't know the answer to that question, but I do know that some things that can make menopause happen earlier beyond the genetic risk um, are uh, smoking and cancer therapy. So there are a few things that can sort of predictably cause menopause to, to come earlier. Um, and those, those are definitely in there. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't actually know the answer to the if I just keep having babies, does that mean I'll never have menopause? Well, I guess my understanding, my basic understanding is that um, menopause is associated with dropping of the hormones that you mentioned from the reduction of eggs in women. So, for example, as we go through perimenopause, multiple eggs are ovulated and less are there. So on a basic scientific level, right, like men are making their their sexual hormones themselves with sperm and all of that kind of stuff on um, a regular basis, right, versus women have the eggs that you're born with or that's it. That's all you get. And so as they decline, as your volume of them um, goes through your regular cycle in life, um, ultimately you have less and less, right? But if you're pregnant, let's say for 20 years, having <laughs> five babies right. or whatever, do you know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah. less eggs can drop and therefore it prolongs that cycle. That was, that's, you know, my grapevine lowbrow understanding of, so um, I think on one level that makes some sense. I think what complicates, um, that equation is that 
um, we don't just, it's not just estrogen produced by the ovaries that is driving menopause. Um, and you can go into menopause, like still having had lots of good eggs left, um, because it's also driven by uh, luteinizing hormone and follicular stimulating hormone, which are produced by the pituitary gland. So there's a hypothalamus pituitary gonadal access aspect to this. So what actually happens in menopause, and this is where testing can be really, really relevant, is uh, estrogen goes down first, but progesterone and testosterone will follow as well. And then follicular stimulating hormone goes up and then eventually luteinizing hormone will go up as well. So by looking at uh, FSH and LH and how high they are in conjunction with how low estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone are, that's how perimenopause uh, versus late, you know, early versus late perimenopause can be identified by a person looking at test results. So, um, so that to me is because there's this uh, piece where the brain has something to do with it. I think that it's, I can totally see a situation where, um, pregnancy can, um, just from the hormones that are, are produced through, even through lactation can prolong the reproductive years. But I think that there's going to be a cap in terms of that's probably, probably genetically driven in terms of how long that effect can actually be effective because of the involvement of, of these all of these other different hormones and gonadotropins, things that affect gonadal function. That's one of my favorite things that you say. <laughs> so, um, so I think you know, one of the things that I sort of want to emphasize is if you hear this list of symptoms and you're like, yep, check, 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 check. Uh, one of the reasons why I introduced this as a, you know, for me, I'm only in my early 40s. And so I'm sort of looking at these and going, okay, what what in these, you know, this collection of versions of these, a few of these symptoms that I've been experiencing over the last little while, uh, what is likely a hormonal imbalance driven by, by stress levels versus like what, you know, what is this explainable by, you know, early perimenopause. And that's really important because if you have a hormonal imbalance, um, and again, you know, other than overtly manipulating hormones with uh, hormonal contraceptive, chronic stress is the other main driver of that. Um, then this is a good situation to like work with a functional or integrative medicine specialist and do some hormone balancing because those symptoms can be alleviated by normalizing hormones. And they, they can, the same symptoms can be caused by high hormone levels versus low and estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, and DHEAS are all potential culprits in that equation. And so it, it becomes really complex to uh, put together a protocol. So hormone balancing protocols are normally individualized based on testing results, and they normally involve like tweaking uh, hormone doses. It's usually you know bioidentical hormone replacement, and it usually involves tweaking hormonal doses to get them into the normal range, which is a little bit different than how doctors have traditionally um, used estrogen to treat menopausal symptoms, which we'll also talk about. So the the way to test whether or not 
the symptoms that you are experiencing are due to perimenopause or impending menopause um, is to look at all the levels of all of those hormones. Um, and this is one of the reasons why we love Everly Well. It's one of many, many reasons why Everly Well has a women's health test that is super comprehensive. And it looks at luteinizing hormone and follicular stimulating hormone, but it also looks at estrogen, progesterone, uh, testosterone, DHEAS. Uh, it looks at cortisol because of the stress link. And it looks at uh, thyroid function because hypothyroidism can also be responsible for a lot of those types of symptoms and because um, stress can magnify through menopause and hypo, um, your thyroid can, can become hypothyroid through menopause. So it really helps to provide a very comprehensive picture in terms of what's going on and can help to identify whether or not this is a hormone imbalance or a hormone change due to perimenopause, which are, you would, you would attract quite, you would, you would address that differently. So we're going to talk about, um, you know, what, what happens if you do that test and you get, you get back your, um, oh yes, this is perimenopause. You know, what, what are the things that can help to alleviate the symptoms that you're experiencing? Um, but I think it's also worth mentioning here that, um, my, non-medical professional recommendation would be to combine that with a cholesterol and lipids test because of the increased risk of developing hypercholesteremia during perimenopause and menopause. So that's my little extra, you know, there's more than one test here that would be, be useful. Vitamin D would also be a great thing to measure at this point because vitamin D deficiency can potentially magnify effects of menopause. So I love uh, the idea of that. I was actually having a discussion with an older than me person yesterday who was um, <laughs> talking about the recommendations of their doctor for all of the different medicines that they needed to go on. And, you know, I had some critical thinking questions for them, like, well, did you look at this level or this level? And mm -hmm. have you thought about reduced inflammation and how that could affect and blah, blah, blah. And so I think that um, making sure maybe go back and listen to our functional MD podcast if yeah. you're wanting to figure out how to find someone who can help you with some of these things because taking these tests yourself and looking at the information is is going to be the best way to not just hear someone tell you you have problems you're getting older and you need to go on all these medicines that all these people who are older go on um, which is unfortunately where I think a lot of the medical world is today and if you're listening to this podcast you're better than that <laughs> you know you know better than that and um educating yourself with these tests and knowing where your cholesterol is for example and not just a number, right? But knowing where your inflammation markers are and your um, good cholesterol versus your bad cholesterol and blah, 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 helps you be an educated person for when you are talking to a medical professional about some of the risks. And if you want to manage symptoms on this end, blah, 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 what you don't want to be affected on the other. So um, I, I love the idea of, ta of taking those tests and having that information because, um, you're able to speak intelligently in a way that is beyond just, oh, you're of a certain age, therefore you need to be on 
and I'm giving an example of the person I was talking to yesterday, blood pressure medication, cholesterol medication, and blah, blah, blah. Oh, but now that you're on, blah, 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 yeah. yeah, now that you're on this medication, your potassium is at an unhealthy level. So therefore you need to not eat leafy greens. Like I was having lunch with this person and they told me they, they weren't eating leafy greens. And I was like, um, what, why? Like, <laughs> in what, in what sense does this, does this help you? Like, and it was just such a, I know I'm getting off on a tangent here, but it was just such a cycle, right? Like they were on the medication because they were getting older, but then the medication was increasing their potassium or was causing a reaction in their body to have high potassium. And so the doctor told them not to not eat leafy greens. And I'm sitting there scratching my head, like, but what if you just like, didn't take the medicine and you ate more leafy greens and reduced your inflammation and your lifestyle? Like maybe, maybe that, that might help. Just I mean, that. I, I think, um, I, I'm really glad that you called this out because, uh, as we get into some of the science on diet and lifestyle, um, and some other things that we can do to, to really address the, the symptoms of perimenopause, um, I think it's important to sort of look at like the conventional medical model is, uh, sim- you know, symptom alleviation with prescription medications. And there are situations where women are on eight to 10 different medications that are each for an individual symptom of menopause. And there's some really interesting studies that look at diet and lifestyle interventions and show that they're far more effective. Um, but it is, there's this, um, you know, and I've, I think we've talked about it on this show before. I know I've been uh, talking about it um, in interviews a lot lately about uh, the sort of inherent sexism in the conventional medical system uh, currently um, where, um, you know, women are in, in many situations less likely to be taken seriously as they're describing symptoms to a healthcare provider. And this occurs in hospitals as well as in doctor's offices. And I think this is a really good illustration of that, where it's a, oh, well, you just need an antidepressant and a sleep aid and this medicine for urinary incontinence and, you know, away you go. And it's, um, I think, given given the link between nutrition and lifestyle and how easy this transition, uh, this biological tradition that we, that we go through is, I think it's it's a real lost opportunity to educate people in terms of healthy diet and lifestyle. Um, And what's really interesting about that is that there's been some studies that have looked at other cultures uh, and traditional diets in other cultures and shown that women in in those cultures have a far lower rate of reporting symptoms of perimenopause. So for example, only about 10% of women in China 17% of women in Singapore and 22% of women in Japan report hot flashes as part of perimenopause and menopause. In contrast, in the United States of America, 75% of women over the age of 50 report having hot flashes. And there's definitely like some, it could be underreported due to, um, you know, cultural differences and women being reluctant to report it. Um, But when you combine it with some other analyses, looking at, for example, uh, the sort of traditional Greek diets, it really does look like these diets that are much, much higher in vegetables, much, much higher in fiber, 
a much, much lower in fat content. So like the thing that these diets have in common is that they contain about four times the amount of fiber as the standard American diet and about a quarter of the amount of fat of the standard American diet. And, and as you like expand on that and start looking at some of these really interesting, um, studies looking at how diet impacts hormone levels, there's a collection of research showing that the sort of typical Western diet, so high fat, low fiber, uh, a lot of animal foods um, can cause high estrogen levels in women, which means that as those women enter perimenopause, they're going to experience a more dramatic drop because they've had this like artificial or this stimulus to produce more estrogen, right? It's it, This isn't estrogen being absorbed from the foods. It's something to do with that diet driving more estrogen production. So then when estrogen starts to turn off, that drop is much lower. So they're habitually acclimated to higher estrogen levels. When it drops, the, the symptoms of that change, it's a bigger change, right? So the symptoms are going to be magnified. Um, but what's really interesting to me is the the relevance to our community, right? So our listeners are very health conscious people um, following variations of a paleo template or autoimmune protocol, um, hopefully respecting bioindividuality and being, you know, willing to self-experiment. And so where I think this information becomes really relevant to us is that there have been studies now looking at vegetable and fruit consumption and menopausal symptoms and showing that um, the higher basically vegetable and fruit consumption is, the fewer symptoms of menopause are experienced. And it's uh, inversely correlated with uh, basically sugars and fats. So dietary patterns that include a lot of uh, vegetable oils, a lot of sugars, sweets, desserts, um, or a lot high amount of animal fats. So like a lot of butter, for example, those eating patterns are associated with higher levels of menopausal symptoms. So more symptoms and more severe symptoms. And there's, there's even been some studies that have started to dissect, like what is it in there? So there's um, been some studies showing that cruciferous vegetables, which is the cabbage family, like independently reduce the odds of experiencing menopausal symptoms. So um, for example, uh, women, um, if I remember correctly, the study was women over the age of 50 who consumed uh, 70.8, I don't know why, 70.8 grams per day, which is basically one serving. So like a, a serving of vegetables is, is standardized at about 80 grams. So they were basically consuming one serving a day of cruciferous vegetables, cabbage, kale, broccoli, cauliflower, turnips, arugula, um, right? So that, that whole family of, of vegetables had half the likelihood of experiencing menopausal symptoms, looking at both physical and psychological symptoms, than uh, the women who on average consumed Wait. less than 33 grams a day. 33 grams a day. Right. Is reducing it by half. So can you give us a us Americans who right. this don't know grams? Means, yeah. So, um, oh, 28 grams is an ounce. So we're talking basically three-ish ounces of broccoli compared to an ounce of broccoli a day on average. 
friends. So it's, not, it's basically not very much broccoli, guys. It's not. It's not. <laughs> it's one serving. It's one serving of cruciferous vegetables per day. Reduce symptoms by half. Like when I read that, I was like, wait, 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 wait. wait. I was like, don't just read the abstract. Go to the paper. Like, oh, you got to read this whole paper. Like that to me is such in- interesting data. So I think that, um, you know, there's there's a fair amount of evidence showing higher fiber is really important. In part, um, fiber helps to. Uh, bind with excess hormones and eliminate them. So fiber throughout our entire lives is really important for hormone regulation. And it seems to be, you know, still the case through perimenopause and menopause. But also what's really interesting is that there's sort of this new paradigm for understanding the symptoms of menopause where um, scientists are starting to make a case for them being largely driven by oxidative stress, um, which you know, oxidative stress basically translates to inflammation, but it means there's a lot of oxygen radicals in in the body. Um, And that's doing things, I mean, oxygen radicals are doing things not just like driving inflammation, but they're also impacting cellular health. They're impacting um, DNA, right? So they're, um, oxygen radicals are the things that cause aging. Like the reason why we age is because, we are aerobic aneurysms that use oxygen and the byproduct of that metabolism is oxygen radicals. And when we, we produce a lot of sort of natural antioxidants and ideally would consume them from our diet. Uh, but there's always going to be some oxidative damage and that is what causes aging. And so one of the reasons why cruciferous vegetables are thought to be so beneficial for menopausal symptoms is because they're particularly high in antioxidants. And that is really interesting because as you start to look at some of the nutrients that have been identified as important, uh, either through supporting like hormone health through menopause or uh, addressing, right, like the osteoporosis risk or like directly impacting severity of symptoms, a lot of it starts to fall under these this antioxidant banner. So there's been a variety of like resveratrol and lycopene and various vitamin E uh, isoforms, vitamin C that have been directly associated with symptoms of, of menopause. And it's, it's likely through this mechanism of being antioxidants. But there are... You, What's interesting is the data shows that deficiency in these nutrients can magnify menopausal symptoms. It's really mixed on whether or not supplementation can help. So it really emphasizes the importance of a healthy diet going into perimenopause and maintained throughout. So um, I just mentioned vitamin E and vitamin C. Um, Vitamin E actually is probably one of the ones where supplementation has the strongest data in reducing depression and anxiety symptoms, as well as improving sleep quality during menopause. Um, And vitamin B12 is the other one that has some um, some pretty good data showing supplementation can help. I still... No, no surprise from, from Sarah. I still think food sources are the best. Um, but menopause increases the likelihood of B12 deficiency. And I'm not really clear on the mechanism there, but that deficiency in B12 is likely driving a lot of the insomnia symptoms that are experienced during menopause. 
So B12 is linked with um, symptoms of menopause. Vitamin D is more, more, there's been a couple of papers that have shown that either deficiency in vitamin D magnifies symptoms or that supplementation decreases them, but it's, it's not consistent. The effect seems to be quite small, but there's a more important line there with, um, vitamin D say being really important for bone health and menopause, increasing risk for osteoporosis, same with cardiovascular disease with cancer. So, um, testing vitamin D and there also seems to be a higher likelihood of menopausal women having vitamin D deficiency compared to premenopausal. So, uh, again, Love me some Everly Well vitamin D testing kits. Um, there's also potentially a link between dietary zinc and copper and ovarian reserve. So that's that when menopause is going to hit. Um, vitamin B6 seems to be important in the uh, mood, like depression and sort of cognitive, you know, the, the sort of brain fog memory stuff that's going on in menopause. And vitamin A, uh, and this is really the the animal form of vitamin A, vitamin A is really important for bone health, but there also seems to be a link between vitamin A deficiency and menopausal women and increased chances of hypothyroidism, including subclinical hypothyroidism. So those are the nutrients that have been specifically linked with menopause. Um, And what's really interesting is, you know, a diet that includes some organ meat, some seafood, and like a lot of plants would be the best way to sort of structure a diet to to meet these nutrient requirements that seem to be really important for um, mitigating the effects of low estrogen. I also just want to point out one of my favorites, it's liver pills. I don't do a good job of eating organ meats enough. And after months, years of making myself feel badly that I hadn't done it enough and blah, blah, blah. Um, I just started taking liver pills every morning and I've talked about how that helps support MTHFR because it's uh, an absorbable whole food synthesizer. It's, I love hearing you talk about B vitamin deficiency and organ meats helping with anti-aging because once again, this whole food form of um, organ meat supplement that I'm taking is helping with yet another health factor. So Mm -hmm. I just want to give like another plug to that as well, because I personally see a lot of health benefits from that particular supplement. Obviously I'm not a medical professional, can't tell you what to do, but at the same time, it's, it's a whole food source. Like it's, (laughs) it can't hurt. Right. So, um, no, uh, uh, high, high, definitely big high five agreement complete. Language <laughs> failed me there, but uh, no, I, I I agree completely. So, and I think that um, I know that high vegetable consumption can be a challenge for people. Hopefully, the like one serving of broccoli a day making a huge difference, or cabbage, or cauliflower, or kale. Um, hopefully, that that information can really help to make the vegetable consumption more approachable. Um, and I think that as soon as you put like lots of vegetables and we're going to eat organ meat and oysters into the equation, I think people just go, blah, too much. And, and it, and it feels, it can feel very overwhelming. And we have a ton of shows where we've talked about various aspects of high vegetable consumptions, eating snout to tail, um, different aspects of, of, 
uh, seafood. And so hopefully our, our regular listeners already have like a really good toolkit on how to, to implement these. Um, for me, reading through this list was just a, um, I think it's normal that we all periodically need a little bit of a kick in the pants. So to be completely upfront with our listeners, uh, yo, Stacy and I aren't perfect and we cycle in terms of how, what a good job we're doing in terms of diet and lifestyle. And I, I, we've both been really <laughs> open about this on this show before. I'm like, what, what are you about to speak for me? And I'm like, yep, nope, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I think you and I have different triggers, um, in terms of what will sort of put us on a path where we're not doing as good a job. And we have different things that are more likely to, um, be the first thing to like fall apart a little bit. Um, but I think, you know, the, the message that I want to give our listeners is, yeah, that's, that's normal. And I think what separates, uh, us and I'm including, this is the, the, the Royal us, I'm including our listeners in this, uh, from people who aren't part of like a health conscious community is the, um, the awareness, right? So the, the knowledge that, this is something that does require a renewed commitment from time to time. And it is important. And I think it's important to, okay, like let's, let's, I've, I've been failing on this lately. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to like recommit to this and, and work on this thing and do it without guilt or blame. Um, but maintaining that level of commitment to the, you know, healthy dietary principles and healthy lifestyle principles. And, um, you know, periodically that means we all need a reset. And I think it's important to just kind of, I want to just sort of admit to our audience that one of the reasons why I blog and podcast and all of those things is because it helps to keep me accountable. And, um, and I'm acutely aware that it's important for me to walk the walk and it has been, um, a really good tool for me to stay on track at least most of the time um, and not let things unravel quite as far uh, before resetting. So um, I'm not saying that everyone needs to start a blog to find that accountability, but I think that I want to sort of take this, <laughs> I want to just pause before we get into to lifestyle and, and menopause symptoms to just acknowledge that uh, perfection is an unachievable goal. I feel like you read my part of the show notes and I'm the one <laughs> dropping the mic now. <laughs> Could not agree anymore. And the other part of this that I said at the top of the show is it's all part of being alive. Like we start to age from the moment we're born. Like the aging process happens. We feel it's a bell curve, right? Because you feel like you get older and then you get younger, but really it's all part of aging. So I think the more we relax into that and forgive ourselves the fact that everyone gets older, um, the easier it is to manage the symptoms, which I think we're going to talk about next, right? Yeah. So uh, there's two, two more aspects that I, I want to cover from a, a symptom management perspective. And then, and then I think it's important to sort of talk about um, what you're saying about um, embracing 
embracing aging, uh, which to me, the, the term that comes to my mind is aging gracefully, um, which is uh, sort of encompasses a um, enjoying the changes while um, taking action to be healthy is sort of is sort of how I think of that term. Uh, but before we get there, lifestyle is also really important for menopausal symptoms, uh, especially exercise. So there's certainly a uh, stress link um, and there you'll you'll find recommendations all over you know functional medicine health conscious um, websites to uh, you know do things like stress reduction meditation uh, if you're feeling those sort of stress related psychological symptoms in menopause um, I mean that's just good life advice the um, number of intervention clinical trials looking at stress factors is is still not not enough to have a really high burden of proof. However, if you expand beyond the topic of menopause, I mean, there's plenty of studies showing that uh, mindfulness practice, for example, is or nature time, for example, are extremely powerful stress management techniques. Getting enough sleep, extremely powerful. And I know what what everyone's thinking right now, but sleep disturbance is a part of menopause. How do I get enough sleep? And that's where exercise comes in. So there's been a variety of studies that tackle this from two ways. So one, they look at women, they look at their symptoms, and they look at how much they exercise. And basically, moderate physical activity has much lower, typically like less than half the amount of psychological and physical symptoms of menopause than low exercisers. But high levels of physical activity, right, so this would be the uh, endurance athletes type that type level of training is not beneficial for menopausal symptoms. So we've talked about the, the U-shaped response curve and exercise plenty of times. This is another place where it applies. So um, moderate physical activity is, uh, you know, basically a lot of movement, avoiding being sedentary and something like an hour-ish a day of low to moderate intensity activity, things like yoga and walking have been best studied when it comes to menopausal symptoms, but it basically means uh, avoiding strenuous or exhaustive training while embracing activity throughout the day. This is the the level we're talking about, and we've we've talked about that happy medium when it comes to exercise approximately a million times on this show. Where well, it's episode three sixty nine, so we've talked about it approximately three hundred sixty nine times. Um, the other aspect of this is that. Um, Studies have done exercise as an intervention and sometimes exercise with nutrition combined as an intervention. So they've taken women who are experiencing perimenopause and undesirable symptoms as a result, and they put them, there's been, uh, you know, 20 to 30 minutes of exercise a day. There's been 50 times, four times a week. So there's there's not a uh, ideal amount per day or per week, but that's sort of the the scale that these studies have done. So really modest. Um, there's exercise that falls under aerobic training category, but that can include walking. Um, so it, it doesn't it doesn't have to be running or cycling or whatever. It can it's it walking is in the in the umbrella of the level of exercise that has been shown to be very beneficial and have shown that 
there is a consistent reduction in symptoms with activity over time. So for example, one study uh, in this particular study, they did 50 minutes of aerobic, unsupervised aerobic training four times per week and saw a 2% improvement in uh, uh, hot flushes, I think was the main, the main symptom they were looking at per week continuously over the six month length of this trial. So it's one of those things that will start to help as soon as you do it and it will continue to help the more you do it. And, you know, plus all the other wonderful benefits. Um, it helps to improve bone mineral density and uh, maintain muscle strength and it can improve sleep quality. So exercise specifically has been shown to address the fatigue aspects um, the sleep, so it's uh, been shown to reduce insomnia and improve sleep quality, and uh, the mood aspects, so improving mood, reducing depression, reducing anxiety, reducing irritability, and also reducing the hot flashes. So those are all of the things that have been measured to improve, and there are even studies that have just done like full symptom surveys and and exercise and shown you know across the board that that symptoms associated with menopause are improving with a exercise intervention. So really, if we take all of this, we're sort of boiling it down to be active and eat a lot of vegetables are, are the, the two recommendations that have the strongest support in the medical literature. Um, and among vegetables, also make sure cruciferous vegetables make it on the plate every day. Um, so I wanted to take a moment to sort of talk about hormone replacement therapy because this is the go-to still in the medical establishment. And, um, you know, it's it's potentially, the symptoms of menopause are potentially entirely mitigatable with diet and lifestyle. Um, if you feel like you're doing all of those things and the symptoms are still, you know, really impacting your quality of life, um, I, I definitely think that there is a time and a place for something like hormone replacement therapy for menopausal symptoms, but I would recommend working with a functional or integrative medicine practitioner who has training in hormone balancing and who's going to do testing and who is going to be really up to date on the literature. So it became really clear in the scientific literature like 10, 15 years ago now that um, estradiol, which is the most commonly prescribed form of estrogen, uh, increased cancer risk in postmenopausal women. And so there was this switch to using estriol, which is a different form of estrogen um, that also seems to improve symptoms. And it does seem to not be associated with the increased risk of cancer, but there's also just not as much data with estriol versus estradiol. So, um, uh, and also, uh, if estriol is used in isolation and not used in conjunction with progesterone, there is the increased possibility of uterine cancer. So I want to just mention this because it's not, you know, in the, in the oldie way of doing this, uh, you know, 50 year old woman would go into the doctor's office and say, I'm having hot flashes and I'm gaining weight. And the doctor would just give them basically like a birth control pill. Um, and, and be like, here you go, here's your, here's your estradiol supplementation for your symptoms. And it wasn't done based on levels and it, it wasn't followed up on other than it was like the decisions were purely made based on symptoms, which is, uh, not the right way to go about it. Uh, you know, the idea is to bring up those levels to something that would be 
um, a, you know, a little bit more like measurable and normal. You don't want to overshoot the mark. And so this is where testing and repeat testing, um, probably every three to four months at first. Um, and once you sort of get into a good swing, maybe every six months, but retesting, um, you know, using something like the Everly Well Women's Health Test Kit and knowing what your levels are with hormone replacement and working with a healthcare provider who is really up to date on the current research is really, really important. I feel very prepared in a way that I wasn't before. So I appreciate that. <laughs> I no, I genuinely, um, this is one of those things where I know a lot of things about a lot of things and don't really know a lot about this. And, uh, it surprises me none, like you said, that vegetables and all that stuff are helpful. But I think knowing what to look for symptom wise and how to be educated and test yourself, um, and then come up with solutions is super helpful. So I thought maybe I could offer solutions in a realm that I am familiar with, mm -hmm. which I get a lot of questions about skincare for aging skin, specifically um, as women enter their 30s, their collagen production and overall moisture in their skin goes down. And therefore, we start to see signs of aging. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about the science of that. Look, I have science. I have like NIH references and <laughs> information for people um, so that you can understand what's happening with your skin and what you could do about it. Are you ready to flip the table, Sarah? <laughs> I, I'm so ready. And I'm, I'm really happy to be able to utilize both of our expertise in this show to really address what I feel is, um, right, uh, the, the full range of symptoms, because I think that there's an aspect of it that is, um, you know, very um, physical comfort sort of driven. But then there's um, the other aspect, which is the aging gracefully aspect, right? Um, you might put this under the, the vanity aspect, but I don't think it's vain to not want wrinkles. I think it's like normal. And so I, I love that you're able to bring your expertise you know, we're going to, we're going to start with exercise and vegetables and we're going to end with shifts in our skincare routines. Let's go. Awesome. Well, and I am going to refer to some other shows that we've done as well, because we have of course touched on this, mm -hmm. um, but I want to just kind of pull it all together. So first and foremost, the, the number one thing to keep your skin from aging is hydration and moisturization, um, preventing oxidative stress with SPF and different kinds of things like that. Damage is caused to our skin by environmental factors, as well as genetic and all the hormones that we've been talking about. So you want to make sure that you're addressing it from both angles if you aim to reduce the signs of aging. As you say, Sarah, it it is what it is. And I I personally feel like I want to embrace it, but then at the same time, that doesn't mean I want to speed up the process. So, so one of the things that is the most affecting your skin is the thickness of your skin. So for example, your epidermis, the outside of your skin is what is, um, going to change and um, get thicker versus the roughness and scaly of your skin is going to cause um, that 
hardening and the aging and, and all that kind of thing. So one of the ways that you can address that is with um, hydroxy acids or fruit acids, often containing vitamin C, which I'm going to talk about as well. Um, and these are widely studied as far as anti-aging goes. You can often find them listed as something called AHA or BHA. Um, and this is essentially going to um, slough off the skin, right? If you think about a fruit acid, it is an acid. When you put lemon on your finger or something like that and you have a cut, it's going to burn a little bit. Um, so it's going to exfoliate your skin um, and hopefully cause reduction in things like acnes, um, scars, pigmentation. I know for me personally, I'm a redhead with a lot of freckles and um, using a serum that is rich in hydroxy acids has actually reduced that, which means it's also reducing things like aging spots from sun damage. I know, but Matt was a little bit sad about that because he loves my freckles. But I still have a lot of my chest and my shoulders. <laughs> okay. um, too bad, so sad. I know, but you know what? It's been amazing for me to see the difference. Like I can yeah. go back and I can look at my face just from two years ago before I used a, a hydroxy acid serum and see how crazy difference that um, sun damage on my skin is. Because as wonderful as freckles are, they are caused by the sun's radiation, which can cause damage. So you could put a hydroxy acid, let's say on your hands or your arms, if you are starting to see signs of aging and you, you don't like that. It's not necessarily just on your face that this would be effective. Um, and the bonus with a hydroxy acid is that it's going to exfoliate and help reduce acne as well. There are studies to show that not only does it help with, um, anti-aging, but it helps with acne. So for me, um, I'm like in this, in this weird spot in life where I'm both starting to show signs of aging and I still have acne prone skin. So this has been incredible for my skin. And it's something that I use every couple of nights. Um, like I, tr I try to use it every other night. If I use it more than that, then when I taper off of it, <laughs> I start to like have a breakout or something like that, which I don't want. So for me, the sweet spot is like every other night to use one of these. Um, so I'm going to talk about some other ingredients that can also help. Of course, there's a myriad, right? I'm sure there's thousands. Um, but these are the ones that are, from my experience, the most effective and the most studied in a safer way. Um, hyaluronic acid is another. Mm -hmm. Hyaluronic acid is something that's already in your skin. It like holds the moisture in. So if you, th if you think about like a, a bubble of water, right, like hyaluronic acid helps, keep that moisture with, within the bubble in your skin. Um, your skin's hyaluronic acid makes up for 50% of the total amount in your body. So um, it is definitely supporting your skin, your dermis, having a water balance. So as you can imagine, as you age, hyaluronic acid is one of those things that starts to deteriorate, um, reducing the moisture in your skin. And so topically adding a moisturizer with hyaluronic acid helps maintain that moisture and hydration in your skin, helping to reduce the aging process. Collagen is another one. I don't know. As many times as you've talked about vegetables, I've talked about collagen. <laughs> um, I take it as a supplement every single day. I try to drink bone broth as often as possible. We eat cuts of meat, especially in the wintertime. They're very high in collagen. Um, so for me, collagen is one of those things that is essential, whether I'm aging or not. But for 
every other person <laughs> who isn't obsessed with collagen, um, your collagen production starts to reduce in your 30s. It's different for different people, but let's say about age 35, you will definitely have reduced production in collagen. And obviously more so as you age, both with peri and full menopause. Um, so one of the things that you can do is not just increase your collagen consumption, but you can um, increase topically your use of vitamin C, which helps synthesize collagen. So vitamin C is one of those fruit acids that we talked about to begin with. Um, but there are studies that show um, that the synthesis of vitamin C is necessary for collagen production. So you can eat foods higher in vitamin C, which will help with all the lifestyle stuff Sarah talked about. Um, it's an antioxidant, but you can also topically apply it. Um, and that has all those benefits of the exfoliation and stuff that we talked about earlier. So we also talked about how vitamin C was helpful in protecting the skin in our chlorine show. Um, it was one of the first times that I kind of had like an aha moment on why some of the things that I use are, are super helpful. Um, vitamin C um, may help and prevent and treat um, UV damage as well. So just like the um, hydroxy acids that I was talking about, the vitamin C in and of itself can um, do that as well, azorbic acid. So what are some of the things that you can do then knowing all of these ingredients and how they work on your skin for anti-aging um, to topically um, reduce that aging, knowing what your skin is going through? So um, first of all, I want you to be mindful, and Sarah, you mentioned this uh, a long time ago, I think on our FDA show, uh, that most of the anti-aging skincare products out there targeted to women's skin that's aging contain hormone disrupting ingredients mm -hmm. intentionally. Um, not just because of the junk that's in them, which we've talked about <laughs> countless times, but because they are um, affecting estrogen intentionally, putting ingredients in that are estrogen mimicking to increase your estrogen production, knowing that that helps with aging because you are losing estrogen as you age. So for me personally, before I use any product, I go to EWG's website. That's the Environmental Working Group's website. They have a skin deep database is what they call it. And you can put in like the barcode of a product. You can screen capture it and it'll tell you its safety rating on an overall level one to 10, one to three being green, I think, um, and then yellow and then red. So, um, Things like retinol and estrogen mimicking hormones are going to be in that 6 to 10 category for um, worrisome health hazards. And I personally, as much as I want to look my best, um, don't want to increase health hazards. Yeah. So it's about finding that sweet spot, right? Which we also talked about on the Botox show. Um, I'm just like throwing out references to all kinds of things at this point. But if this is a topic that you want to learn more about some of those shows might help. So um, some of the solutions I talked about, consuming more collagen and vitamin C, both inside and out. Um, but the two things that I have found the most results from, both from hearing from other people and doing it myself, are dermabrasion. So this is something where 
you can get done professionally with an esthetician or I actually do it myself. I have tutorials, um, videos of me doing it on my Instagram account if you want to go check that out. Um, it's very simple. It, it's not as scary as it sounds. Um, it's a tool that's like a vacuum and it has like an exfoliator on the edge of the tip. And as you move it across your face, it's pulling the skin towards the exfoliator and then it's kind of roughing up that top layer of skin that we talked about that gets thick and hard as you age. And what that does is increase cellular turnover so that the blood can come to the source and repair the skin cells um, that are now kind of exposed that weren't exposed before. Um, and this has been amazing for, I specifically had 11 lines above my brow because I'm a very expressive person, as you might imagine. <laughs> I'm quite passionate. And um, it looked like I was kind of furrowing my brows all the time, if that makes sense, because those lines were showing even when I wasn't furrowing my brows. My brows and um, that dermabrasion on that area, I have seen go away within a year of doing this regularly. And that's just a tool that you can get yourself, you know, on Amazon or whatever. You can watch YouTube videos or you can go get it professionally done, whatever you're comfortable with. But this is a safe way to um, get new skin without needing to put fillers or Botox or something in that area. I personally have seen results and I know other people have as well. But the thing that I want to tell you is once your skin is exposed and you have new skin, essentially you've taken off the top layer of skin, um, you want to make sure that you're nourishing that skin that is new and fresh, that you're replenishing the moisture and you're feeding that new skin with active ingredients that are helpful in healing. So all the things that I just talked about, right, the hydroxy acids, AHA, BHA, the hyaluronic acid, vitamin C, you want to use something after dermabrasion that will intensely nourish that new skin so that it's happy and it's, you know, it's showing signs of um, being young and fresh, which is what you want, right? For me, um, using a resurfacing serum, in my case, I use the Beauty Counter Overnight Resurfacing Peel, is a way that does that. So the resurfacing peel is an exfoliation um, and you can, there are a lot of different um, options for this, but resurfacing or that chemical exfoliation, chemical is not a bad word. Hopefully you know that from Sarah and I's podcast <laughs> at this point. That just means that it, instead of it being mechanical, which is what the dermabrasion is in terms of exfoliating your skin, you're putting something on it, whether that's, you know, natural or not. Chemical just means, um, a thing, right? So it's a chemical exfoliation on your skin. Um, and so what that's doing is even further, um, exfoliating my skin from the dermabrasion. And um, the peel that I use is rich in um, a, 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 uh, hyaluronic acid. I actually use one that uses a form of sodium hyaluronate, which is a smaller molecule of the same thing, which just allows it to absorb easier. And it's also combined with um, a botanical blend, which has fruit acids containing both vitamin C and AHA and BHA. So essentially, it's delivering, um, I think it's like six soothing and seven exfoliating um, acids all at the same time. 
that's the the 13 acids that are in it to clear away the surface of your scales uh your cells but also to like soothe and nourish and brighten that complexion afterwards it doesn't matter if you use this particular peel or if you use um, an intense moisturizer that you love that has active ingredients that contain vitamin c or something like that you want to make sure after you exfoliate your skin whether that's a mask whether that's you know um for example like as a teen I have Cole use a mask and the biggest thing with me is I'm like constantly like you have to put on a moisturizer afterwards like your your pores are open right now what you don't want is more environmental damage going into those pores before you protect them with something so you have to moisturize after you exfoliate your skin that's the key thing um but I did want to mention that if you were interested in trying the one that I use the um Beauty Counter Overnight Resurfacing Peel is what it's called. I know it sounds scary. It's not actually peeling your skin. Um, it's exfoliating it, as I described. Um, that one is free through the month of September from Beauty Counter as a gift with purchase for something called Band of Beauty. That's like their Amazon Prime. Um, it's a welcome gift to the program, essentially. But there's no auto ships or anything weird or crazy. It's just like their welcome to Beauty Counter gift, which is a $63 value. So... I would be remiss to mention to you that this product that I love and use personally um, is available as a gift through the end of the month. And we'll put a link in the show notes, um, but you can check it out at beautycounter.com slash Stacey Toth, and it's called the Overnight Resurfacing Peel. Yeah, I actually, I mean, our our listeners will, will know that um, I have other brands and a, and a mix of different brands that I um, find really work really well for my skin, but you sent me some of the resurfacing peel to try. And I really am impressed. Like I've I've already started integrating it in with the like non beauty counter products that I use on a regular basis. And so I, um, I I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm all on board. I I'm really impressed with what it has done for my skin in like just under a week, like a pretty short period of time too. I'm so happy you're happy. (laughs) And I will also say, I know one of the things that really is important to our listeners and to you is that the skincare products that you use are safe across the board. So this peel, just to be very clear, is certified gluten-free and has been tested for um, human health and safety across 23 human health endpoints. So that's super important to me is to make sure that the things that I am putting on my skin when my pores are open and I'm trying to nourish it are not going to have an ill effect against something else that I'm doing. So that's why I use that um, EWG database and I try to use brands because I I do use some things beyond just Beauty Counter, I promise, Um, that they are safe and I know what ingredients are in them and that they've been tested for safety because those things are really important to me. So um, I hope that overall you feel educated on different things you can look for to help your skin. I think there's a lot of information out there when it comes to anti-aging. I know personally, uh, because of the YouTube videos that I watch, I get a lot of ads for anti-aging products. (laughs) Sometimes I'm so horrified. I'm like, oh my gosh, no, don't use that. Right. So, um, I, I use, um, also a line that has, um, 
Bacachol, I have a really hard time pronouncing that, and Swiss Alpine Rose. Um, those are a safer alternative. What What's called like a retinatural complex is safer than um, retinol, and which, like I said, is uh, one of those reds on um, EWG and was done, I found like an NIH study where it was like a randomized double blind um, study where they put the two head to head and they both produce the same results against the signs of aging. So that's pretty incredible that you can find ingredients that are safer, that are effective. And that's what I want everyone to have because it's not worth, in my opinion, quote unquote, looking better if it causes harm to your health. Here, here, which is an excellent segue back to reminding our listeners that everlywell.com offers a lot of really great uh, testing kits for assessing that health piece, including addressing hormone imbalances, thyroid health, cardiovascular disease, risk factors, cholesterol, right? Those, all those vitamin D levels. Um, a lot of things that are really relevant to women's health, especially middle-aged women who are uh, approaching perimenopause or menopause. Um, and you can go to everlywell.com slash thepaleoview and get 15% off your order with the code thepaleoview. And uh, I really love Everlywell. I'm so glad they're a podcast sponsor. I love it too. I, I think there's such a good full spectrum of ways for people to focus on their health. And what would be really cool is to take the women's health panel and then really focus on some of the lifestyle things like, you know, adding broccoli, mm-hmm. sleeping more, different things like that. And then taking and the test again, again and seeing the results, right? Like the, yeah. I, I'm a results driven person. So for me, I'm all about like, okay, what's going to happen when I increase my vitamin? Now that I know I'm low on vitamin D, once I increase it, will I see results on the women's health panel of other things improving, right? Like other hormones, because we know that vitamin D regulates, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I'm like doing a little jazz hands excited about the whole thing. And I know that our listeners have been asking for this topic for a really long time. It's one of our most asked about questions and required a lot of research across all fronts. So thank you, Sarah, for your 47 pages of references. <laughs> I also included about half a dozen um, references and links in my notes if you want to check those out. But if you have follow-up questions, as I know that you do, mm-hmm. we welcome them. All 7,000 s- of them. I'm predicting 7,000 follow-up questions. Wow, you're predicting a lot. Mm-hmm. I don't think... Maybe maybe six thousand five hundred. Okay, is where I'm at. I might um, be exaggerating a little. <laughs> but if you have specific follow up questions that you'd like us to handle um, and and tackle and follow up part two, three, or whatever to the show, we welcome them. We just want you to remember that we are not a medical professional and we cannot give you specific advice for your particular health issue. But we are happy to address things from an overall perspective, you know, to general health. And um, we'll do our best to get to your questions if you submit them. We probably will need to group them into these are the type of questions we received. And <laughs> probably that's okay. Like what we, we want to hear all of your questions, send them all in. You can find the contact form on either of our blogs. Um, Sarah is thepaleomom.com and I am realeverything.com. We sort through both of those. Um, 
and are happy to help you with that. And um, if you would like to follow up on anything that we mentioned the show, we can always find our show notes on our blog. Um, and then we love to hear from you on social media. Like this, while it's difficult for us to sort through questions that you submit on social media, um, hearing from you, seeing you tag your friends and posts that we do and encouraging them to listen to the show. Um, when you share bits of the show on social media in your stories or on Facebook or wherever it is, that just means that you're helping other people find the show and hopefully improve their health. So you're doing everyone a favor, including us, when you encourage others to try this out. So if you learn something and you enjoy the show, the best thing that you can do for us is to recommend it to others. And we appreciate you doing that. Thanks for listening. And we'll be back next week. Thank you for listening to The Paleo View. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to rate us on iTunes. You can also support us by shopping for our favorite paleo products on the sidebars of our individual websites or by donating through PayPal. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.